Welcome to a special edition of the Retail Exchange in New York. Hosted by Carl McKeever. Brought to you in association with Visual Thinking. Inspiring retail performance. You join me for this Retail Exchange special coming direct from NRF, the big show. We're going to be looking specifically at the year ahead. We've just come through a period where many retailers have announced their Christmas results and there's been some surprising highs and lows and winners and losers. But of course, this show and this event specifically is all about looking at what's coming next. What can retailers do to influence their fortunes? I'm delighted to have here with me today three amazing guests, each with some very strong points of view. My guests today include Steve Dennis, a leading Forbes contributor, who I'm very pleased to have with us. Kirsty Keane, who is lead retail specialist from Visual Thinking. And also Andrew Busby, again from the UK. And Andrew is also a Forbes contributor. So welcome all three of you. Thank you. Thank you. What I'd like to do is to start the conversation by saying which brand or retailer stood out. Steve, if I could begin with you. Well, this is definitely on the negative side. I think Cole's uh, performance, poor performance, was a, was a standout to me. They've talked a lot about a lot of the um, innovations they put into place, their partnership with Amazon driving a lot of traffic, and yet uh, their, their comparable store sales were, were quite tepid. So. And do you have any thoughts about why that was? I do. I mean, I think um, in general, it's part of what I uh, refer to as the collapse of the middle, that these retailers that are neither fish nor fowl, you know, neither strongly on the value side or more experiential or premium or what have you, really are having a hard time, you know, whether it's, at least in the States, you know, whether it's JCPenney or Coles, Macy's, they're all really struggling and continue to struggle. So even though they make some incremental improvements, doesn't really seem to capture the customer's attention very much. And this is a theme we're going to come back to in this conversation. Of course, why that matters so much is because of the size of those businesses, the number of employees, the number of doors, sure. their overall impact in terms of the retail economy. Sure. Kirsty. The standout for me, I have to say, was Marks & Spencer from a food perspective. So, you know, they're doing something quite compelling with their overall proposition. They've really upped the ante in terms of their um, overall look. Um, they're driving quite a bit of innovation, but also their pricing structure has become um, a lot more in line with some of those other value-driven businesses. Um, However, that said, um, I think the difficulty is, and that has always been with M&S, is that actually their GM product is not faring in the same way. So I guess credit where it's due, this is an area of the business which had continued to uh, have some work to be done yeah, to definitely. restore its fortunes. But whatever the new team are doing there, it seems to be paying off. How about it for you, Andrew? Well, I mean, I'd, first of all, I'll go along with that. And also having visited their um, food hall in Clapham. Uh, yeah, you have to because, you know, you know, I think I'm probably known for uh, not always being so complimentary about M&S. But I think you do need to give, as you say, Carl, you need to give credit where, where it's due. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, the clothing continues to be an anchor which drags the whole of the group down. But the other unfortunate bit on the negative side was John Lewis. Um, I'm not sure whether any of us really saw that coming. On the positive side, it's usually those retailers who are doing the basics right and they are engaging and they're inspiring their customers. That, you know, and sadly, there's a lot who, who just simply continue not to do that. But so I think, you know, we've really got to focus on the ones you know, like an ex, like a Primark, who, who are doing that. I think what we brought out there early on in the conversation is the unique perspective that we aim to do today, bringing together the best of UK and USA retail and really talking about what's next. We're going to look at five sectors in some detail. I want to 
throw those out there and for each of us just to give some comments on what do we see as some of the headwinds, where are those challenges and what would be the response that's required to literally keep these businesses on the straight and narrow. We've had a couple of years of some spectacular retail failures, people that are wobbling, people who are still in the intensive care room who need some further help. But if they were going to do some things this year, what should they be focusing on? And let's start with grocery. So look, grocery is something that affects all of us. In the UK, Morrison's had a disappointing Christmas. Tesco was flat as the biggest retailer. But we've seen the continued rise of the discounters. Lidl and Aldi both posting impressive performance. And as Kirsty mentioned, Marks and Spencer, really, I think, turning things around. Some great green shoots there in terms of how they can re-energize the business. But Steve, from a USA yeah. perspective, what's going on in grocery? Have you still got some of those big polarization challenges between kind of the low price, the mid-market, and kind of the, the premium end? Yeah, I think it's still pretty polarized, but I think in the grocery here in particular, it's moving much more stronger to the value side. Some of the retailers you mentioned, some of the bigger ones, I think, emphasizing value more. One of the big factors in the U.S. and I think in some other markets is, you know, basically the rich are getting richer and everybody else is, is struggling or getting poorer. And so a lot of the shift to value, whether it's grocery or apparel or what have you, is driven by macroeconomic factors. And do you think that's what's behind the recent announcement, say, from someone like Dollar General, who are going to be having a pretty impressive expansion during this year? Yeah, I think if you if you look at the shift away from moderate department stores, but I would say also probably moderate price points in grocery, a lot of that is driven by affordability. Now, some of it is also expansion of a lot more options. There are many more places where people can go to a dollar store or a Trader Joe's or, you know, it's just the sheer availability. Uh, is driving some of those market share shifts. The other thing I think is happening in grocery is really a, a battle for delivery speed. Uh, Amazon and most of the major grocers and Walmart and Target are all really upping the ante in delivery, whether that's literally to your house in an hour or two window or ordering online and, and pick up. So I think a lot of the technology battles are being fought or and customer battles are being fought on the convenience side. And I think the trend in grocery businesses per se around not just offering the core food shop, yeah. but also branching out into broader general merchandise categories is just as strong here in the US. And I think if you take somebody like Target, who for a couple of years ago was maybe looking less, uh, less on that, that positive path, right. but they've really done some very good work. What do you think is, is happening in Target? So I think Target's a great example of, of what I call the store striking back, which is where some physical retailers uh, decided that their stores were actually assets rather than liabilities. What I say a lot is, you know, when you think of something as a liability, then you want to cut it or control it. Uh, and I think that was sort of the pervasive direction for a lot of retailers in the so-called retail apocalypse. But some savvy retailers like Target said, well, you know, our stores need to be different, um, but how can we leverage some things that they can do uniquely that an Amazon can't uh, and operate them in different ways. And so in many cases, that's order online, pick up in store. It's in some selective investments, you know, realizing that they can actually get a payback by putting in more customer service, maybe remodeling the store, reallocating. And I think space. Target have also been very strong on developing a private label. It's an area where they've yes. really been quite transformational. Both, yeah, they have a big push on consolidating their private label. The other thing I think they've done selectively is partnered with some of these newer brands uh, like Quip and Casper to, um, to offer you know, a unique point of view 
for brands that are not physically distributed to the degree that some of the big national brands are. So when we come on to talk about some of the pressure which is happening, some of the more boutique or lifestyle retailers, what we can see is, is that the grocers continue to make inroads into their categories, mm -hmm. be that clothing, general merchandise, stationary products for the home. The might and power of the grocers and their ability to act fast and act at scale is right. what's really piling on the pressure. Well, that and I think just inherently grocery from a frequency standpoint, you know, if you think you're of a typical traditional department store, right, you get four or five trips a year, right? Most people are going to the grocery store, you know, at least once a week, if not multiple times a week. So they can just leverage that add-on or impulse sale in a way that most other um, traditional retailers can't. And Kirsty, I think you were also commenting uh, before we started to talk together about how Sainsbury's appears to be coming back. And I think that's been very much reflected in the sales of their general merchandise as well over the Christmas period. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that, you know what, they've, it, it echoes a lot of your points actually there from, uh, you know, from a basics perspective. You know, I think they, they've really invested in some retail standards, you know, the overall store presentation, some of those real essentials for retailing, they focus back on again. And I think, you know, they draw the ball a little bit there and they kind of felt very much that they could you know trade on the back of their name and actually not invest in those things and look at tech etc which don't get me wrong is needed in this generation of retailing however you still need to remember that the basics are fundamentally important especially in those frequent customers who are returning multiple times a week it's about having fresh produce readily available it's about making sure that it looks neat clean and tidy give me somebody there if they're available to help me and make sure that my transaction is you know Know, smooth and you know I will want to come back again. Yeah. And Andrew, mm -hmm. we've all seen the rise of the discounters in the UK and again here in the US, brands like Aldi are starting to make some very strong inroads. What do you think is going to be some of those kind of headwinds in the grocery sector uh, in the UK? Because I think as we've seen, it's really those with a very strong discount perspective or a value-driven proposition which are really doing the numbers. Yeah, so you know, if we look at, you know, we were just into 2020 and, and it seems the, the fashionable thing now to talk about this decade. So we, now our horizon, you know, the, everybody had their 2020 plans. Now, well, you've got to deliver them. We're on to, in 2020 now, so let's look at 2030. So in terms of if we, if we take that horizon, then I think of the big four, one of them will disappear. Um, I would have bet my money a few years ago on that being Morrison's. I'm not so sure about that now, but one of them, because of the rise of the discounters, they're taking more and more share. They're, they're eating up more and more of the market. Uh, and I don't see that slowing down. I see it accelerating because we know that both Aldi and Lidl are on massive expansion plans in the UK. Uh, they did very well, especially in wine and their center aisle, general merchandise. Uh, I don't see that slowing down at all. I think to Kirsty's point, um, Sainsbury's, I'd agree with everything that you said, apart from the fact that it, they're beginning to turn it around. I don't see that, and you're, but you're absolutely right. I think availability, customer service, store standards, uh, and that goes back two years when they cut out a whole layer of uh, management and staff from the stores. So yeah, basics matter. And I, and I think the other thing for me, not just with grocers, but across the piece, is that you really need to be clear about what your brand stands for. Because if you're not, how do you expect your customer to understand? If your customer doesn't understand, they'll get confused and they'll leave. And of course, this is the year in the UK where Marks and Spencers will eventually launch its transformational, you know, multi-million pound transaction with Ocado to now start to have an online grocery delivery. How much of a game changer do you think that's going to be? For M&S, I think it could be massive. 
the Akata platform is obviously very good, very effective. I don't see that you know, all the signs are, particularly with the troubles that Waitrose um, are having, that I think that'll be successful. I think what it will also do is focus their minds on the food business and it will, I think it will make them wonder, well, where are we going with this? Do we want to just become a food business? Yeah, so, I mean, many people have asked the question before, but do you think we could start to see some serious discussion about possibly the separation of those businesses? Uh, yes, in, in, in a similar way, not the same, obviously, but a similar way, I guess, to John Lewis. Uh, and I think they're already starting, because there's signs now that... Um, that Steve Rowe and the management team there realised that obviously everybody knows they've got too much space. It's been a question of, well, how do we repurpose it? And of course, what they're doing now, uh, and I think it started with the Marble Arts Store. I don't think they've uh, acknowledged it officially, but it looks very much like a couple of those floors in that flagship store are going to be turned over to office space of a, a WeWork style you know, model. So, so let's take the conversation to Marble Arch and specifically Oxford Street London and here you find some of uh, Britain's biggest department store brands. So let's look at department stores and what's going on there. Steve, tremendous amount of change in the last couple of years. Um, Sears is a story which is not yet done either ways. Well, yeah. It's a practical matter it is. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> It was done when I left, not because of me, but it's been done for a long time. It's just taken a long time to, for the patient to die. Yeah, it's a kind of, it's an agonizing story. Yeah. But are we in the same territory, do you think, with Macy's? Look, Macy's have done a lot of work to try and kickstart and reboot and refresh. But all the evidence is pointing that some of these smaller initiatives are still not having the scale of transformation that's required. Right. So, I, you know, I often talk about people thinking a slightly better version of mediocre is a successful strategy. And I think that's what we're seeing a lot. These retailers are doing very incremental things and they're just fundamentally very, very disadvantaged. I, I think Macy's is, is a much healthier company than, than Sears was, you know, even if you go back 10 or 15 years, but they are getting hit on every possible side, trading down to the value retailers, some trading up to, to uh, specialty stores or nicer department stores. And so, I mean, they need some pretty, pretty massive change. And of course, the massive cost of reinvestment in turning some of these stores and making them into well, better places. You know, the, the sad thing, because a lot of times, you know, people ask me, you know, what, what do I think some of these retailers should do? And, you know, I have some ideas, but the problem is most of them are not workable. And the reason they're not workable is because these companies get to a position where they don't have the capital. I mean, even if they have the management, even if they have a plan, they don't have the capital structure or an investment group that's going to go along for the ride. And so, add to that, they don't necessarily then have the time. Right. So, um, so it, you know, it's, it's gotten harder and harder to do these transformations as time has gone on because I think people are less patient, pace of change uh, has accelerated. So, I'm, not, so who, I'm not terribly optimistic. I think. So, who else should we have on the watch list for um, American department stores this year? A anybody in the middle, I would say, in the middle of the market that's, that's not making massive changes in trouble. Yeah. Kohl's, Pennies. Uh, Macy's, Dillard's. I mean, I would say anybody that doesn't have a really uh, distinctive market position and, of course, executing it well. And we have yeah. this conversation today on the very same day that news has broken in the UK that Beals, one of the Britain's oldest department store groups, is facing potential administration yeah. with a, a likelihood to close all stores and maybe a thousand plus people laid off. Andrew, fundamentally, are the challenges in the department store sector in the UK any different to what Steve has outlined here in the US? I don't think so. And by the way, that you know, it's very sad about Beals. That's where I started my retail life when I was 19, 18, whatever. So, but um, no, the, the, the headwinds are, are, are the same. Um, but again, in the UK, 
talking about the department store model, if you execute it well, you'll be successful. Selfridges, Harrods, okay, so we know those, but also on a smaller scale, and, and the one who performed the best this Christmas, Fortnum and Mason. Uh, and probably behind that, um, Liberty. And to Steve's point, that's where distinctiveness, brand clarity, having something yeah. which is a unique proposition right. is a strongest tool that you can have in your armory. It is. I think, yeah. I think the other thing I just interrupt is, I think you know, the U.S. is vastly more overstored than, fundamentally than I think most markets. And so that's the other pressures. There's just so much real estate chasing you know, a and in, and, and in this, this environment we, we have, you know, 24-7, 365, is there still a role for the department store? I think there is. Um, again, as I say, if, if, it's done, if it's done well, I mean, we've seen, you know, the problem with the department store model is that it's a bit like the Eiffel Tower or the Fourth Bridge or whatever. You know, as soon as you've finished painting it, you've got to start again. So to keep that big box running and all those escalators that are running through them and the whole infrastructure, that takes, to Steve's point earlier, that takes capital. And again, where, where the likes of um, Selfridges, I think those four, you know, Selfridges, Harrods, Fulham Mason and Liberty, where, where they score is that you kind of, you, you, and this is a reflection on us as consumers, we want to go in and we, we want to be inspired. We want to, you know, we want to be curious. We want to go around every corner and there's something new, something surprising, something different. And they deliver that. Yeah. I guess it's a really interesting question to think about, that if um, Selfridges, Liberty, Harrods did not have the tourist pull, if they were not located in central London, would they be facing some of the same challenges to the other department stores that we see nationwide? Well, I mean, Selfridges on, on Oxford Street, I mean, let, you know, let's be clear, Oxford Street is, for my mind, one of the worst. If you were going to design the worst customer experience you could, you, <laughs> Oxford Street would be it. Uh, and they're, of course, on the Marble Arch end of Oxford Street. Um, but I think your point is still valid that, yeah, there is a certain amount of that. And obviously, if we, we look at the, uh, the tourists who are coming into, whether it be from the US or whether it become from uh, the Far East, from China, from Japan, and so on and so forth, they're not going to worry too much about that. They want to go to the destination store. And Kirsty, you are strongly interested in department stores as well. And I think Andrew mentioned earlier that John Lewis has some troubles of its own. But you were part of the first group, I think, that saw John Lewis's first experiential store when they mm -hmm. opened in Oxford Westgate. Mm -hmm. Similarly, you went on to see the next generation of that when they opened the store at Westwood London. What do you think is really successful or not within this, this rejuvenation? Because so much has been placed on experience, but is that what customers are still wanting? Uh, do you know, I'm not so sure. So I think that that model works brilliantly in the likes of Westfield, you know, in White City. I think it works great because I think when you're going to somewhere like that, actually, you've got the time, you know that you're going to invest that time in whatever experiences that are um, an option for you. So I think that actually it works there. When you get down to the smaller cities, I think that the model is going to struggle. The concept is going to struggle because actually I think that, you know, largely speaking, I do think that there is a little bit of a mismatch. I think the customers that go in there, actually it's more about service. So a lot for John Lewis partnership to get its head round this year, both at its Waitrose division and similarly in its department stores. And of course, that's not even taking into the conversation what could happen still with Debenhams going to close 19 of their stores by the end of January this month. And of course, House of Fraser, which has had its well-documented troubles. Moving on from department stores, I think we can save both from what we looked at in grocery and what's been going on um, elsewhere. Mid-market is where the pressure is really on. Yeah. We have here in the US, the likes of Gap, and even now rumored to be Old Navy that's starting to lose right. some traction. Yeah. Where, where is mid-market gonna go? And what needs to be done? 
Well, I'm not certain, uh, and I'm, I'm maybe like a broken record on this. I, I'm not certain there is anything really in, as a mid-market anymore. I think it's just so hard. I'm sure you find some exceptions. I think it's so hard to stake out any real ground there. I think, you know, you've got retailers that have certain issues. Like I think Old Navy, to me, is really more of a value player. I'm not even sure I would put them in the mid-market. But I think you get the problem of having expanded a lot, maybe not executing as well. I think those are, those are perhaps more their issues than being mid-market per se. And I think irrespective of sector that you're in, you mentioned, I think, what is going to be the key word for this year, and it's all about execution. Andrew, what does execution mean to you? Uh, execution, I think, you know, it, it means, yeah, doing the basic, and this, is, and this is the trick, this is the challenge. You've got to still do the basics, and as Kirsty was saying earlier, that, that's, you know, what we're seeing. If you don't do that, then you're going to fail anyway. So you've got to still continue to do that. You've got to try to find that capital because the demands and expectations of consumers are just running away from most retailers. They can't keep up. So they've got to try to find a way to grab their attention. So they need to come to places like this, you know, the NRF, because they're going to see all the technology on display. But they need to understand their brand. And once they've done that, that should inform them about what technology they want to deploy. So smart deployment, really, not just tech for tech's sake. Steve, execution, what does that mean for you in a nutshell? Well, so I think about it as you have to deeply understand the customer journey and kind of what Andrew's saying. They're the basics that you have to execute on. You have to eliminate a pain point or just meet the very basic standards. And that will play out differently depending upon what sort of retailer you're in. I think the real magic is, I mean, execution now, I think, has become table stakes. I mean, you're really going to get hammered whether it's on reviews or just losing business if you can't get the, the basics right. The key is to find those things you can really amplify to be more remarkable. That, that's the hard part. But I think the pressure on execution or the almost like the return of focus on execution has come because a lot of retailers understand that their traffic is declining, probably going to continue to decline in many cases no matter what they do. And so if you can't convert the traffic, you've just wasted yeah. um, some of your investments. So I think it's getting that real laser focus on what are those things that are most important to, to conversion of the traffic you have. Second thing would be what's most important to adding on another item or trading that customer up. Kirsty, when we were chatting earlier, one of the things I think you felt was crucial to execution was store team capability. Absolutely. You know, so much has been invested in stuff which is going on behind the scenes in the back office, but actually it's about rebalancing and focusing more of that time, effort and energy and physically real cost on re-engaging colleagues. Most definitely. I think for me, execution, if I were to sum it up in two words, it'd be best practice. Absolutely best practice. And that's um, through everything. So everything that Steve and Andrew have already discussed, but you're absolutely right, Carl. It is about, you know, teams delivering that best practice and understanding what good looks like. So make making sure that they know how to make sure the store looks good. They know how to service those customers and do it well. They know how to make sure that the store just looks its absolute best every single day. If, if footfall is de declining and continues to decline, it's got to look absolutely stellar when they walk in, regardless of whatever market you pitch yourself in. Mm -hmm. It's got to be all about best practice. And of course, this year, I think, is going to be starting to be defined by what brands are doing with regards to sustainability and how they're really progressing that agenda. We're here on one of the most record-breaking temperature weekends in New York. It's January, yet it's 66 degrees outside, a record-breaking temperature. The stores are full of coats at 50% off reduction. Go figure. Yeah. I've been delighted to have with me here today Kirsty Keane, Steve Dennis and Andrew Busby. Thank you so much for your contributions. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. You've been listening to the Retail Exchange Podcast in association with Visual Thinking. Stay up to date with new podcast episodes by subscribing online at theretailexchange.co.uk and join the debate on Twitter, hashtag Retail Exchange. Thanks for listening.